Mark chapter 14. We're back in the book of Mark after a couple weeks out for, of course, Pentecost and Father's Day. We're back now, Mark chapter 14. And listen, do me a favor, when you get to Mark, uh, keep your marker there. Keep your, get it, Mark, marker. Keep your finger there. And go to Hebrews 9 as well. And then stick something in Hebrews 9. We'll start off in Mark 14, but we'll get to Hebrews 9 and 10. Save us some time later down the road. Mark chapter 14 we're going to be looking today at the Lord's Supper, also known as communion, the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, some time ago, I was teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians at the college ministry, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 has some very important things to say with regards to communion. We will not have time to touch upon those today, but I'm giving you this homework assignment. Once again, go to the website, jesusisreality.com. Go to the messages page, search the messages by topic, and let communion be your search word. And there you'll see the message from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 entitled, The Lord's Supper. I want you to listen to that this week. And when you put that message and this message together, it will be helpful as you process the meaning and some important things to know about the Lord's Supper or communion. The idea of communion is that we are to do it in remembrance of, of Jesus Christ. He'll say that in our text today or say that in the parallel account of Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. So the idea is remembering Jesus and the point of communion is to call to heart and mind the assurance of complete forgiveness of sins once and for all through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are to remember him and in so doing we are to have it refresh in our hearts and our minds and in our beings that we are completely, holy, totally forgiven for our sins. And the opportunity that that provides is one for us to draw near to Jesus in intimacy as we recall his person and his work and we act upon the awareness that our sins are removed. So with that in mind, I want us to look at verse 12 of Mark chapter 14. It's where we find ourselves today. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread... When the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now we get to the point in our study of the book of Mark, a year and three quarters after beginning, to the night before the event of the cross. The night before the event of the cross. It would be the ending of night Nisan the 14th on the Jewish calendar, the beginning of Nisan the 15th on the Jewish calendar. Okay, so it's just about the sun is setting right now in Jerusalem in our text. And of course, early the next morning, we know that the Lord will be crucified. And the Jews are all observing in Jerusalem both the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, was to commemorate the exodus from Egypt that the Lord brought them out of them there so quickly, he told them not to put leaven in their bread, that they were to move quickly, and a picture that he was removing them from Egypt. And the Passover was a lamb that was slain to protect Israel. You remember that. Every head of the household had to slay a lamb at the door of the household and put the blood on the top and on the sides. And as it dripped down, it would foreshadow the perfect image of the cross thousands of years before the cross was ever invented as a tool uh, for capital punishment. And so they're reminded at this moment of the Exodus and of God's preservation 
through the Lamb. And each Jewish family at the moment of our text would be going up to the Temple Mount with their lamb. And there was, uh, you remember, uh, almost every family in Israel was in Jerusalem for this celebration. And so there were big lines at the temple. It would be very loud. Lots of commotion going on. There they were with all their little lambs. And they're all waiting in line. And they'd get finally to the priest. And the priest would slay the lamb for them, the priest's job. And then they would take that lamb home and they would roast it. And the family was to eat the lamb that night remembering the lamb that protected them from the wrath of God when they were brought out of Egypt. So they took it home, they roasted it, and they would celebrate. And this was a family celebration. You were to do it with your immediate family and maybe one other family. If your families were poor, you could get together and share the lamb. But it was to be a very much a family thing. And it was to happen inside the walls of Jerusalem. And so the disciples say to Jesus, where should we go to prepare the Passover meal? Very interesting that they just assume that they would celebrate Passover with the Lord. Remember, as a family thing. These little Jews, every year prior to that, would have done it with their families. We know that some of these disciples were married. Certainly Peter was. And yet they assumed we are going to be with our Lord on this Passover. This disciple body here, this is our family at this time of celebration. And they said, uh, where do you want us to do it? It's got to be inside Jerusalem. But every family in Israel was looking for an extra room in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So, Lord, where are we going to do this? Jesus had made arrangements, verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and prepare for us there. So Jesus had made some arrangements. He was ready when they came with the question. Uh, And what we don't know is whether he had made these arrangements practically That is to say that he went to an owner of a house and said, okay, at a certain time of day, I want you to have this guy go out carrying a pitcher of water. My disciples will see him. They'll come back. Here's the code word. Where should the master? I don't know if he did it that way or if he did it supernaturally. Our hunch is he did it supernaturally, huh? Our hunch is that's the way the Lord did it. It reminds us of Mark chapter 11. Don't go there. I'll just read it to you. But you'll remember that he had... um, before the triumphal entry, he said to his disciples, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say to them, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders said, what are you doing? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And so they took the colt. Same thing. The Lord has been arranging things here, I believe, supernaturally. Whether he did it practically hands-on or he did it supernaturally in his deity really isn't the point. The point is that Jesus Christ, the night before the cross, is in complete control of history. He would say, no man takes my life from me. The cross was not a mistake. It was not an afterthought. It was not a whoopsie. It was the ordained plan of God to accomplish our salvation. And Jesus is in utter and absolute control of history at this moment, as we see from our text. We know that uh, from Luke chapter 22, the parallel account, that the two that were sent were Peter and John. Peter and John. He sent Peter and John and not all 12 disciples. 
Because remember, at this point, Judas is looking to betray the Lord. Look up at verses 10 and 11 from our study a couple weeks ago. It says in verse 10, And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. That is Jesus. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. And so Judas, Judas, Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And so he sends Peter and John. And so Judas has no idea until he gets there where the location of the Passover feast is going to be because this feast must take place because of what Jesus inaugurates at this feast. So there would be no interruptions by the sovereign hand of God. So Peter and John are to be looking for this man carrying a pitcher. Now you would think on the eve of Passover there would be a lot of men carrying pitchers, making preparations for the Passover meals, but in that day only women carried pitchers of water. If the men were going to carry liquid, they did it in wineskin. And so to see a man carrying a pitcher would be odd indeed. It would be like seeing a man carry a purse today. It would be like if I said to you, hey, go over to Linden Avenue and look for a guy carrying a purse and follow him. And wouldn't it be very hard? you just wait. There would probably, hopefully, only be one guy carrying a purse on Linden Avenue. And so they go and they wait till they see this guy carrying a pitcher and then they follow him. And they say to the owner of the house in verse 14, the rabbi wants to know where his room is. We're told about the room that it was a large upper room. That tells us that the owner of the house who would host Jesus and the disciples this night was wealthy. If you had two stories in Jerusalem in that time at your home, you were well-to-do. If you had a large upper story in a large upper room, you were very well-to-do. We know from history that the well-to-do people in Jerusalem lived in upper Jerusalem near the location of the temple, near the Temple Mount. Um, those who were not as well off lived down below uh, toward the bottom of the city, down toward the Kidron Valley. When we go to Israel Church on December 28th, when we get to Jerusalem, we'll go and see a model scale of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. And we'll see the upper portion of the city where the wealthy lived and the lower portion. And the the poorer people lived there uh, for several reasons. Number one, it was more open to attack. Number two, it was hotter down there. You didn't have the breeze of being up near the Temple Mount. And number three, you were downwind from the sewage system in Jerusalem. So Jesus chooses a place that is upwind from that. It's near the Temple Mount. It's in this large upper room that we, Lord willing, will visit on our trip there. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. They begin to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely it's not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve. It's the one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Here they are on this momentous occasion, celebrating the Passover, a most joyous time for Israel with their rabbi, with the teacher, with the Messiah, Jesus. And in the midst of this meal, as they're reclining around the table, Jesus drops a bomb. He says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, for the first century audience, this this was horrific because whenever they would take a meal together, especially the Passover meal, it spoke of intimacy of relationship. 
It spoke of friendship. When they would have meals together at the Passover meal, they always reclined. They never sat. And so it spoke of friendship. And so for him to say, one of you is not my friend. One of you is going to betray me. It was a real shock to the disciples. And they went around one by one and said, surely not I. I would suggest to you that in their heart of hearts, so they said with their mouth, surely not I. Each one of them was thinking, I hope it's not me. Do you understand what I'm saying? In fact, Luke chapter 22, the parallel account, tells us that, tells us that they began to argue which one was the greatest. The Lord said, one of you is going to betray me, and they start saying, well, I'm the greatest, can't be me. I'm the greatest, can't be me. I'm the greatest, can't be me. I would suggest in their hearts that they were all afraid that it could have been them. Wouldn't you agree? Verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips in the bowl with me. Now, that was the eating style at the Seder meal or the Passover meal. Perhaps you've celebrated one with some Jewish friends or just as a Christian, you celebrated that meal and you take the unleavened bread and you dip it in these different things and you eat it like that. We'll eat meals like that when we go to Israel this year. And it says in John chapter 13, verse 26 and 27, Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do it quickly. Wow. Can you imagine the moment of anticipation as the Lord reaches and he dips the morsel of bread, and he brings it forward, and everyone's wondering, oh, don't let his hand go toward me. Not because God's hand was going to force someone to betray Jesus, but because in every wicked heart, they knew it could easily be I. Handed the bread to Judas. Nobody expected Judas. In fact, it says that they, be, they were in disbelief. It says in uh, John chapter 13, in the following verses there, that when he said, whatever you do, do it quickly, they thought that Jesus was telling Judas to go buy some stuff for the feast or perhaps something to give to the poor, which was a tradition at the time of Passover. Nobody suggested Judas. He was the one that held the money bag. But you remember from verse 11, it was money that tempted Judas. It says in verse 11 of our text, and they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. I want you to, I want us to notice that it started with the desire for earthly things and it, ent- it ended with the entering of Satan into his life. That ought to be a profound lesson that wonderfully terrifies us. The open door for Satan into the life of Judas was his greed, was his want of material things. It's not wrong to have material things. God will bless you with material things, some of us. But beware of the love of money, which is the root of all sorts of evil, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it goes on to say that some, by pursuing after it, have fallen away from the faith. And that's exactly what Judas did. He went after the money, fell away from Christ. And it says explicitly that Satan entered him. It's also important for us to realize, though, that Jesus was extending friendship to him to the very end. If you read all the gospel accounts, you'll see that a few times during the meal, even in the time leading up, Jesus mentioned, one of you will betray me. Even when he washed their feet in John chapter 13, that beautiful picture there, when he washed their feet, he said, now you are clean, but not all of you 
one of you is going to betray me. And he says it a few times at the meal, as if he is giving Judas the opportunity to repent. Judas, I know your heart, but change your mind. The Bible says the Lord looks upon the heart. Judas, I know your heart, but change your mind. And he is giving him these subtle warnings. In fact, we can surmise that Jesus, when he laid down, when he reclined at the table, chose to recline right next to Judas. He passed him the morsel. Must have been right on his right or on his left. To the very end, he is extending friendship to this man. In fact, there's a prophecy about this moment in Psalm 41, verse 9. It says concerning the Messiah, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The New Testament applies this to this incident with Judas. The Lord calls him his friend. To the very end, we'll see as the text continues in lessons to come, to the very end, he's extending friendship to Judas. It reminds me of what we learned last week in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Do you remember this? Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. The Lord was just waiting for Judas to turn in his heart. Just like the prodigal son. Just take some steps of repentance to me. And I believe that Jesus would have reclined toward Judas and embraced him and kissed him and renewed him and restored him. But Judas wouldn't have it. And so it says in verse 21, The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now we see here the delicate interplay between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Jesus was going to be crucified. He was going to be betrayed. It was going to happen. But woe to the man through whom it came. In that day, most of Judaism believed both in God's sovereignty and in human responsibility. And indeed, that is a biblical view that we hold to today. That with regards to our salvation and our lives, we see an interplay which is inseparable within the pages of the Bible of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. We see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. In verse 36, Peter, at the Sermon on Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Therefore, I'm sorry, there should be another verse there, verse 24. Let me go to it real quick. Verse 24 reads, no, that's right, verse 23. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Sorry, we should add 22 and 23 up there. So Peter says here concerning Jesus Christ that he was delivered up in Acts 2.23 by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says in the next breath, but you nailed to a cross this man. You see there that it was God's plan that Jesus died upon the cross, but they were to bear responsibility for nailing him to the cross. And says, In fact, he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then he ends his sermon in verse 38 by saying, Repent. 
So we see there, illustrated in the book of Acts, that there is a sovereignty of God's plan and human responsibility as we interact with that. We see it reflected by the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 16, the psalmist writes concerning God, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now because of that passage, we don't want to fall into fatalism or determinism, where God is going to do whatever he's going to do. That's not true. God interacts with you and I, and it is a mystery. Our days are ordained. They are written, but there is human responsibility and free will in the part of the sovereignty of God. In fact, part of the sovereignty of God is that he chooses to give you free will. These two things don't contradict each other. They interact and they intersect. We see it again in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says there, Uh, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's the sovereignty of God. God has prepared good works for us beforehand, but that we should walk in them, meaning some people won't. The sovereignty of God is he set them aside for you. The human responsibility of man is you can choose to follow or you can choose not to. It is a mystery. And we see that in the life of Judas. The Lord was going to be betrayed, but when Judas betrayed him, he bore the guilt of that betrayal. And Jesus said, it would have been better if you were never born. Verse 22. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Verse 22, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he tells him, Take it, this is my body. The parallel account of Luke 22 tells us that he said, Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Those two phrases, this is my body and this is my blood, have been the source of controversy from the birth of the church until now. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Those two phrases, this is my body and this is my blood, have been the source of controversy throughout the time of the church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches a doctrine called transubstantiation. We have it up here on the PowerPoint for you. Transubstantiation. It is also known as the real presence. And it is a Roman Catholic teaching that during Mass, the elements of the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, are transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. The Roman Catholic Church teaches... At the time of communion, the bread that is there actually, literally, physically, really and truly becomes the body of Christ. And that the cup, the wine, becomes the blood of Christ. I have an excerpt for you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 1376 says this. The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring... 
Because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church. And this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change in the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly been called transubstantiation. That is the teaching of the Catholic Church. And so they believe that communion can only be offered by an ordained priest. At the moment the priest holds up the bread and quotes the words of Jesus, this is my body, they say at that moment by the power working through the priest, it becomes the actual flesh of Jesus Christ. They believe that the bread then is to be adored it is, as it is held up before the congregation. They also believe that then grace is imparted to those who are present. And they believe that what takes place in the partaking of communion at a Catholic Mass in the Roman Catholic Church is a real and true sacrifice of Jesus Christ, just as the cross was. Now let's think about this biblically. I don't intend to offend, but I do intend to search the Scriptures. Let's think about this for a minute. I believe that what the Roman Catholic Church view fails to recognize is the symbolic nature of Jesus' statements concerning the bread and the wine. That when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, he was using word and object to teach something very important. Don't we do that all the time? It's called an object lesson. He was using word and object to teach something very important. Does Jesus do this elsewhere in his teachings? Absolutely. In John 15, 1, he says, I am the vine. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. Now, he's not literally actually a vine, nor is he a physical door, as we would see on hinges. But he is teaching with word an object to illustrate, to show, to impart something. So that is symbolic language. I am the vine, meaning we need to abide in him. I am the door, meaning he is a way to eternal life. I am the bread, meaning he is our substance and our, our sustenance and our sacrifice. And this is my blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of many. And the actual blood would be poured out upon the cross. So the Roman Catholic Church fails to see the symbolic nature of his statement. Secondly, Jesus was holding the bread in his hand when he said, this is my body. I do not believe, it's very important when we look at the Bible, that we listen with first century ears. That's why we often talk about context. I do not believe that the disciples who were there, when Jesus held the bread and said, this is my body, that they would have thought that's his actual body. Because they saw his actual body. And he was holding bread. I believe that the natural hearing for the person that was present, they would have understood that he was teaching in a symbolic way. Thirdly, I believe that the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation fails to recognize the clear New Testament teaching of the finality and completeness of Christ's sacrifice once and for all for our sins. That he died once and 
and for all for our sins, and there is no longer a need for sacrifice. And yet that is part of the doctrine of transubstantiation, that it is a real sacrifice that takes place. I have some quotes from a book by a man named Ludwig Otto, and uh, it's called Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. On page 402, it says in the book, the Holy Mass is a true and proper sacrifice. On page 408, the purpose of the sacrifice is the same in the sacrifice of the Mass as in the sacrifice of the cross. Primarily the glorification of God, secondarily atonement, thanksgiving, and appeal. Now that just doesn't sound right, does it? That what happens in the Mass is a sacrifice that is the same as what took place upon the cross? Another quote, pages 412 to 413. Ludwig Ott writes, As a propitiatory sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Mass affects the remission of sins and the punishment for sins as a sacrifice of appeal. It brings about the conferring of supernatural and natural gifts. The Eucharist sacrifice of propitiation can, as the Council of Trent expressly asserted, be offered not merely for the living, but also for the poor souls in purgatory. Wait a minute. The Bible says clearly that upon the cross, Jesus was offered as a propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, that he died once and for all for humanity, and there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Compare what the Catholic Church says in that book with what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Hebrews 9, 24 reads like this. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, talking about when he ascended unto heaven, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 25. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, I want you to bear in mind that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that every week at Mass, there is a sacrifice of Christ like the cross. But it says here in the book of Hebrews, verse 25, chapter 9, Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood, not his own. Speaking of the high priest in Judaism. Verse 26, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, that teaches that there is no purgatory. There's heaven or hell after death. Verse 28, So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That second appearing, of course, is the second coming without reference to sin because sin was already done away with upon the cross. Read the language of the Bible there. He would not offer himself often. He would one time put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once would he bear the sins of the many. In fact, what did Jesus say in John 19.30 upon the cross? It is finished. He did not say to be continued. He said, it is finished. 
tetelestai. Paid in full, meaning there is no longer a payment needed for sins. So it would not stand biblically correct to say that there is a sacrifice that takes place in the mass service and communion in the the Roman Catholic Church that holds any weight before God for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, communion is to be the assurance that our sins are paid for once and for all. If a weekly sacrifice was needed for sins, such as in the mass service, then we would be in the same situation as the Jews were in the Old Testament. Look what it says in Hebrews 10, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3. It says, concerning the sacrifices that the Jews offered day in and day out, it says in Hebrews 10, 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin year after year. The Lord does not seek to remind us of our sin. He seeks to remind us of our forgiveness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Wayne Grudem in his book Systematic Theology says this on page 993. The idea of a continuation of Christ's sacrifice destroys our assurance that the payment has been made by Christ and accepted by God the Father and that there is no condemnation now remaining for us. If we are to say that in communion there is a sacrifice, then we have no assurance that our sins are forgiven. They were once and for all paid for. This will make it very clear. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet." For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind. I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The Bible is very clear. There is no longer any offering for sin. Because of the cross, we have absolute assurance that our sins are forgiven. And communion is not to be a reminder of sin as the Roman Catholic Church would make it out to be. It is to be a reminder of forgiveness, that we have been washed, clean, renewed, made brand new by Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Here again we see symbolic language. The Bible calls his flesh the veil. It's not an actual veil. It's like the veil in the temple that was torn in two. Symbolic language again. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Bible says that we have confidence to come before God. And that's why we do communion the way that we do it here. 
That's why we just set it out for you up here in front of the platform and you're able to come whenever you want to come because the Bible says because of what Jesus did upon the cross once, we have confidence to enter into his presence. That you don't need to go through a priest. You don't need to go through a pastor or any other person. That you can get up out of your chair, come into the presence of God and commune with him by the bread that was broken. By the wine that is a symbol of the blood that was spilled to wash us white as snow. And so we draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance. That is what communion is to be. It's not us coming saying, oh no, I'm sinful, but us coming saying, gee whiz, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. And understand that what that forgiveness affords us or buys us is intimacy with God. Intimacy with God, as we spoke of last week. In fact, if you were to take a Webster's Dictionary and look up the word communion, here's the definition that you would find. It means to talk together intimately, to be in close rapport. That's why the Protestant church calls it communion, because we are to come and talk to our Savior, talk to our Heavenly Father intimately. We are to be in close rapport with Him. That's why we let you do it on your own timing. That's why there's carpets for you to come here and kneel before the Lord, sit before the Lord, lay before the Lord, because it is to be intimacy with Him, a rapport with Him, relationship. That is the opportunity of communion. It is most beautifully pictured in John chapter 13, verse 23. Don't go there. I'll simply tell you that it says there that John the Apostle was reclining upon the breast of Jesus Christ. That is, they all were reclining around the Passover table. That John being near to Jesus, and possibly Judas on the other side, John chose to just lean over and put his head on the chest of his Savior. And he just communed with him. That's so intimate. You would never do that to me. I I would never do that to you. We don't do that to one another. Maybe in a marriage situation, maybe with your mom. But this man, John the Apostle put his head on the chest of Jesus. And it was the most natural, wonderful, beautiful thing in the world. That is what the cross has bought you and I, Christian. That is what communion is to be. Resting our head upon the chest of Jesus because he accepts us. Because we're forgiven, we are accepted by him. There's no necessity for performance or meeting any need, but because he met the need on the cross and because he performed in his life, we have full acceptance with him. And so it says in verse 22 of our text, take it, this is my body. And again from the parallel account in Luke, do this in remembrance of me. So when we come to communion, we are to remember that. We're to remember the cross. We are to remember that it is finished. I think it was just the best picture that the Lord could possibly give us. Have you ever been separated from a loved one by distance or time? Isn't it wonderful when you have a picture? I always travel with pictures of my family. I keep them with my Bible when I travel. I can remember when Kate and I, um, before we were married, she, the girl, she's so cool. She went on a surf trip for three months. And uh, I was so lovesick. I was so lovesick. We had broken up for eight months prior to that. We'd been going out for a couple years. We broke up for eight months because we're idiots. Uh, 
we got back together, and right before we got back together, right after we got back together, excuse me, she went on a surf trip for three months. She's such a cool chick. And, and when she, her first stop was Hawaii. She took a picture of herself in Hawaii. She mailed it to me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that picture was my life for three months. For three months, that was my life. It was my future wife. I would hold that picture and it would remind me. All those feelings would come flushing back into me. All those feelings of love and excitement and adoration and all that was right about it. Every time I looked at that picture, they were right there. And communion is a picture from God. Every time we partake of it, that intimacy is right there. The reality of Jesus Christ is right there. Not just a picture to look at but something that is three-dimensional and tangible that, we, tangible that we can even ingest, that we can hold in our hands. It's the most powerful picture he could give us until he returns and we see him face to face. He sustains us, being as he called himself in John chapter 6, the bread of life. There's a man named Dr. Charles Malik, and he was a one-time secretary general of the UN, and he said this, One time he said, I can live without food. I can live without drink. I can live without sleep. I can live without air. But I cannot live without Jesus. There's a man that would do communion right. When we come to the communion table, we are saying, Jesus, you are my life. You are my sustenance. You are my everything. I cannot do without you. And so just as bread nourishes our physical body, Jesus nourishes our spiritual body. Verse 23, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many. In the Bible, covenants were always ratified by the blood of sacrifice. The cup there that he held was not a sacrifice. It was a picture of the sacrifice it would be the next day. The covenant that was spoken of was a new covenant that was prophesied for Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31. That covenant includes the forgiveness of sins, the writing of God's law upon the heart of his people, and his declaration that he would be their God and he would be their people. He says there that it's poured out for the forgiveness of sins for the many. Remembering Isaiah 53 verse 11, where it says, My servant, being the Messiah, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And so his blood cleanses us from all guilt, all shame, all condemnation, from every sense of unworthiness and dirtiness. There's cleansing in the blood of Jesus Christ that we remember when we come to communion. Verse 25 is the last verse. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is so beautiful. It's very common in that time that people would make vows. I'll never do thus and so until this happens. I'll never do this or that until this comes to take place. It's very common in the culture. Jesus says, I am never going to drink wine again until I am reunited with you guys, speaking to the disciples and you and I, in my kingdom. Now that created in them some sense of anticipation, some excitement. That is why uh, they said to him in Acts chapter 1, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom? The fulfillment is in the millennial kingdom. After the second coming of Jesus Christ. Speaks about it. I'll just read it to you. 
in Amos chapter 9. It says this, Behold, verse 13, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. That will be the fulfillment of what Jesus said in our text in verse 25. I won't drink this wine with you again until we do it in the kingdom. And Israel is restored to the land. And everything that was promised to them by God will be delivered by God or Jesus Christ was a liar at the Passover meal. And so now we, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, when we partake of communion, we proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim his death until, it, until he comes. All that it means for us, we proclaim to one another to one another and to the world. In the early church, when they took communion, they combined it with something called the love feast. The early church would get together, we'd call it a potluck, and they'd all bring food. And there they would celebrate and they would eat. They were with one mind and one accord, continually breaking bread at each other's homes. And there they would meet and they would have the love feast, the agape feast, and at the end of that feast was communion. And for the early church, it took on a declaration that even as this is the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ. And as we partake of it together, it speaks of our unity as one. There is no separation in the body of Christ. Let there be no separation between us as a church. We proclaim our unity in him until he comes. We proclaim the power of the cross until he comes. And when he comes, we will be seated in Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, inside the walls, partaking in the fruit of the vine with our Creator and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Until then, we participate, and it's very real. John Calvin said this, The godly, the godly ought by all means to keep this rule. Whenever they see the symbols, to think and be persuaded that the truth is surely present here. For why should the Lord put in your hand the symbol of his body and blood except to assure you of true participation in it? What we're about to do together, take communion, is the most real thing you can possibly do on the face of the earth. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most historically provable fact in all of antiquity. It is real. Our forgiveness is real. Be free from sin and condemnation and shame and come to the table and rejoice with your lover and your Savior and your best friend. Commune with him intimately. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen.